Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. So good to see you here today at Res Life. Hey, man, you may be seated. Denise and I could hardly wait to get here, first of all, because we love your pastors. Don't you love your pastors? Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie are the real deal, and we're so grateful for them. And I tell you, every time I come here, that I will be eternally grateful to God for Dwayne Vanderklok, because Dwayne conned me into my first trip to Russia. And it changed my life. Thank you, Pastor Dwayne. Thank you, Jeannie. Denise and I love you both so much. But I want you to open your Bibles today to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and today I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Is that all right? John chapter 6, and as you're turning there, I want to tell you that I have a brand new book. I rarely mention my books from the pulpit, but this one I want to mention. And it's just out. Actually, it's not even officially released yet. This is the first week it's ever been made public, and the name of the book is called How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. Do you ever feel like the world has gone crazy? Just look at the news yesterday. What happened with all these shootings? We're living in a world today where delusion has so permeated society. People don't know if they're men or if they're women. There truly is a spirit of delusion that has been released into the earth. And when you study Matthew chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus, what is the sign of your coming? And most prophet teachers say, well, Israel is the primary sign and certainly Israel is a sign. But the first thing Jesus said was take heed that no man deceive you. That word deceive is the Greek word planeo. The word planeo is translated in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 11 as the word delusion. And Jesus was prophesying at the very end of the age, when you can go no further, spirits of delusion will be released into the earth, and they are working in the earth today. But we are the church, and part of our job is to keep the lunacy out of the church and out of our homes. So how do we keep it out? And that's what this book is about. And we just brought a limited number of these. So I want to encourage you, if you want one of these, you need to run to the table to get it. But it's called How to Keep Your Head on Straight, in a world gone crazy. How do you like that? People are already call it, calling it the crazy book. And I kind of like that. Anyway, open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to stand in the pulpit of this church and to speak the word of God. Holy Spirit, you are the one that authored this book. You're the only one who's really authorized to teach it. And so today we ask you to do what you do. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to open the scriptures. Take us into the Bible today until we see it, till we feel it, we live it, and we are changed by it. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. John chapter 6, today we're going to begin in verse 1. And in John chapter 6, verse 1, John is writing, and he says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, verse 2. And a great multitude followed him because they were seeing the miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, 
and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Verse 6. And this he said to prove him. One translation says this he said to test him. For he himself knew already what he was going to do. But if you would go back to verse 1. And in verse 1, the Bible says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And when Jesus came across the lake, which is called the Sea of Tiberias, he came back into the region where there was the little city of Capernaum. Capernaum was a magnificent city. This was not a poor fisherman's village. In fact, Capernaum was one of the most luxurious cities on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a reason that Jesus located to Capernaum. First of all, it was the major port on the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, it was a border town. If you wanted to enter the state of Israel, you had to enter through the border right at the city of Capernaum. And everyone who came into Capernaum had to pay taxes. And that tells us why Matthew was there and why Jesus met Matthew in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was the primary center for collecting taxes in all of Galilee. We know there was also a regiment of soldiers that were there because there was a centurion who lived in Capernaum. There was a very fabulous synagogue, so there were a lot of religious leaders in Capernaum. And the Bible even tells us there was a nobleman who lived in Capernaum. The word nobleman, the Greek word basilikos, it describes somebody that is royal or someone of noble descent. And so when you think of Capernaum, If you've thought in your mind this was just a poor little fisherman's village, remove that idea. When Jesus located to Capernaum, it was a very strategic move. And you have to understand that everything God does, God does strategically. Money was in Capernaum. People were in Capernaum. Every strata of society was in Capernaum. But even more important than all of that, There was a major road that went right along the side of the city of Capernaum. And in fact, if you go to Israel today, there is still a road there. And the modern road is built directly on top of the ancient road. And during the time of Jesus, this road began in the city of Damascus. And if you followed it, it went from Damascus to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it went all the way to the city of Cairo. It was called the Via Maris. And it was the major highway in the land of Israel. And when Jesus located to Capernaum, he located to a place where there were a lot of resources for his ministry. A lot of different kinds of society were in the city of Capernaum. He could touch the political sphere. He could touch the financial sphere. He could touch the militaristic sphere. But even more important than all of that, because there was a major highway, Capernaum was a tourist city. And even in the time that Jesus lived there, during his own life, The city of Capernaum came to be called the city of Jesus. And he was the number one tourist attraction in the city of Capernaum. And people were coming on that highway from the north and from the south and from the whole of Galilee because Jesus was in Capernaum where he lived in Peter's house, which you can still visit today. It was identified in the third century. It really is the house where Peter lived. And that is where Jesus conducted his healing ministry in the city of Capernaum. And while Jesus was in Capernaum, the highway regularly filled with people that were coming from the north. They were coming from the south. They were coming from every part of Galilee to see this Jesus who had relocated to the city of Capernaum. And that is why when we come to verse 2, 
The Bible says, and a great multitude followed him. When you read this in the Greek language, which is the original language of the New Testament, these words, great multitude, are very important. They paint a picture for us. It's the word polus, oklus. Both of these words are not needed. The word oklus by itself describes a massive multitude. But if you attach the word polus to the front of it, it becomes a modifier, which makes the word oklus even bigger. So this was not just a multitude. This was a massive, massive, massive multitude. And in fact, this was the largest multitude that had ever followed Jesus up until this point. And the Bible even tells us why the multitude was following him. And a great, massive, massive multitude followed him. The Greek tense for the word followed means to habitually follow. You could actually translate it. They were following and following and following and following, habitually following. They kept on following and following and following, which means the multitude was literally addicted to the ministry of Jesus. If Jesus turned north, they all followed him north. If Jesus turned south, the whole multitude turned. They followed him south. There's no doubt about the usage of this word followed, to follow and follow and follow and follow and habitually follow. And the reason they were following is because, look at verse 2, they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. They saw, agrees, the Greek tense with the word followed, which means you would literally translate it. And a great massive multitude kept on habitually following and following and following and following and following him because they kept on habitually seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Even the word did is important because the word did in Greek is the word poieo, The word poieo is the Greek word which describes a flow of creative power, creative power. And this denotes the category of miracles that was really attracting the attention of the multitudes. It wasn't the healing of headaches or the healing of blood pressure, but the word did, the Greek word poieo, means Jesus was literally releasing creative miracles, which would include creating eyes where there were no eyes, limbs where there were no limbs, The miracles simply abounded in Jesus' ministry. You know, it's amazing. If you look at the very last verse of the book of John, verse 25, John makes this statement. He said, if everything that Jesus did could be written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But when you read that in the Greek language, it really means this. If it were possible, of course it's not. But let's just say it were possible, if it were possible to do it, if we were able to record everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Well, let me ask you a question. If you compile Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels, and you chronologically add up how many days are represented in the four Gospels from Jesus' birth to his ascension, I didn't say how many years. We already know it's three and a half years, at least. But if you add from his birth to his ascension, how many actual days do we have a record of, of the life of Jesus? Very interesting question. Answer 23 to 53. Somewhere between 23 and 53 days of Jesus' life, actual days, 
are recorded in the four Gospels. Probably 23, 24. Well, now, wait a minute. If you look at those 23, 24 days that we read about in the Gospels from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, we don't even have a single record of one complete day. All we have is pictures or fragments or snaps, snapshots into little fragments of those days. And it took four Gospels to record fragments of what he did in 23 or 24 days. And that explains why John said, if it were possible, of course it's not. But let's say we tried, if it were possible to record everything that he did, the world could not contain the books that would be written. It's simply abounded with supernatural manifestations. And when you come to verse 2, it explains why the mob was following him. And a great multitude, oculus pulus, a massive, massive multitude habitually kept on following and following and following and following him because they saw the Greek meaning. They kept on seeing and kept on seeing and kept on seeing and kept on seeing the miracles he did. The word poieto, creative miracles he did on them. That word is eased. Even the word on is important. It is the word epi. The word epi describes something that has burst upon them. So when Jesus' ministry began in Galilee, it was like a divine invasion from heaven entered into Galilee. There was a bursting of God's power in the region, and miracles and signs and wonders began happening everywhere. And the Bible says, upon them that were diseased, this word disease, the Greek word asthenio, describes those that are frail in body, and it can also describe those that are financially destitute because they've spent everything they have on their medical condition. And the power of God came. Epi, it literally burst upon Galilee. And the multitude was following and following and following and following and following. Then we come to verse 3. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover feast of the Jews was nigh. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how. But in some way, in some way, Jesus has separated himself from this massive, massive mob. And now Jesus with his disciples has gone onto the top of the mountain. The King James Version says there he sat. The Greek actually says he reclined, which means even Jesus, though he was the son of God, even he needed physical rest. And now he and his disciples are reclining on the top of a mountain. Well, you're going to see in just a few moments, this mountain was a beautiful place. From the top of this mountain, they could look right onto the Sea of Galilee. The view was magnificent. They could feel the breezes coming from the water. And verse 10 tells us there was much grass in the place. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. And now Jesus and his disciples have separated from the mob, and they are resting, they're reclining, they're relaxing on the top of the mountain. And in addition to seeing the sea below them, Right at the bottom of the mountain is the Via Maris, which was the highway that went from Damascus all the way to the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us it was at the time of Passover. This is very important. Because at the time of Passover, it was a religious requirement that everyone go to the city of Jerusalem. If you lived as far as Damascus at the time of Passover, you were required to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. If you were in Cairo, you were required by law to leave Cairo and go all the way to the city of 
Jerusalem. So at this particular moment, everyone who lived north of Israel and in the north of Israel, they're en route to the city of Jerusalem. And now Jesus and his disciples are reclining. They're relaxing on the top of the mountain after several intensive days of ministry, and they can look down at the highway below them, and the Via Maris, the highway, is packed literally with tens and thousands of people who are coming from the north of Israel and the north, north of Israel itself, and they're all en route on that highway, all of them traveling to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover, when suddenly someone in that crowd somehow discovers that Jesus, the miracle worker, is right up there on the top of that mountain. And so now as Jesus and his disciples think they have separated themselves from the multitude, Jesus lifts up his eyes. Look at the next verse. He lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. The crowd now has made a turn, a detour, and the entire mob is now coming up the side of the mountain. And the Bible says Jesus saw a great company same words we find in verse 2, oculos pulos, a massive, massive, massive mob of people. And the Bible says they were coming unto him. The word unto is the Greek word pros. It means directly toward him, which means Jesus knew they were not coming to see Peter, James, or John, or anyone else. That entire multitude was coming directly for him. And the Bible says when Jesus saw it, in fact, the word saw, the Greek word theomai, which means to look at something like a theater. This was quite a dramatic unfolding that Jesus was watching take place. And Jesus saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? Well, the word buy is the Greek word agorizo, has two meanings. First of all, it's where we get the word agora, which describes a marketplace or a store. It's also the word which means to purchase or to buy. When you put the two words together, the verse should literally be translated, hey, Philip, are there any stores up here where we can buy some bread? Well, of course, there's no stores up there. They're on the top of a mountain in a remote location, far from everything. And now Jesus says to Philip, when shall we buy bread? Are there any stores up here where we can go make a purchase to buy bread that every one of them may take a little? The Greek says that every one of them may have a fragment. Verse 6. And this he said to what? Prove him. For he himself knew already what he was going to do. Well, if he already knew what he was going to do, he did not need to ask this question. Why did Jesus ask this question if he already knew what he was going to do? And the verse says, he said this to prove him. A newer translation says, he said this to stretch him. And I really like that translation. But in fact, it is a Greek word perazzo. The word perazzo means to test something to see if it's all that it boasts to be, to test something, to identify if it has a flaw or a deficit. Well, now, wait, wait, wait. Does this mean Jesus didn't know about their real faith level? He needed to ask them something to discover something about them? No, Jesus knew everything about them. Jesus didn't ask the question for him to find an answer. He asked the question so the disciples would make a discovery about themselves. They had traveled with Jesus. They had ministered side by side with Jesus. 
If the multitudes were seeing the miracles that he did, and they were seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing this burst of the miraculous in Galilee, and they were seeing it from their seats in the crowd, how many more miracles had the disciples seen? They were on the stage. They were helping Jesus minister. They were right there when the power of God was manifest. They helped Jesus with the cripples and the blind that were brought to him. They were close. They saw it all. They could feel the power. They saw it up front. And you would think, after they had seen Jesus heal everything, even do creative miracles, turn water into wine, raise the dead, after everything they have seen Jesus do, you would think at this moment they would have said, Lord, we don't know where the food's going to come from, but you are the Lord of all. You can do anything, Jesus. We trust you. But when Jesus said to them, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him, to expose him, to expose him. He already knew what he was going to do. This one question revealed where he was in his faith and where the other disciples were in their faith. After they had seen everything that Jesus had done, they still had a lack of trust on the inside of them. They did not know that Jesus could do this. I want to ask you, how many of you can say God has been faithful to you? You've seen God heal your family, deliver your family, fix your finances, work on your marriage, restore your relationships. God has absolutely been faithful. And yet when you face something new in your life, do you rush to faith? You should. God has never failed you. But when something new comes you've never encountered before, do you rush to faith or do you find a little panic settling into your soul? And in this chapter, rather than rush to faith, the disciples moved into a state of panic and went on a food search as if they are going to be able to find enough food in that crowd to feed a massive multitude. Now they're running in and out of the crowd looking for food. Everyone's searching, 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 looking for food. And in verse 7, Philip answered, and said, Lord, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. The word pennyworth in Greek is the word denarius. A denarius was one entire day wage. That's a whole day's wage. So you could paraphrase the verse, Lord, if we were able to accumulate 200 days of salary, even 200 days of income would not be enough to purchase bread to give every one of these people a crumb. That is how big the multitude was. And the Bible says, suddenly, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, wait, 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 there is a lad here. So now they're working the multitude, looking for food. Andrew sees a little boy about to eat some food. He suddenly takes the little boy in his arms, runs to the top of the hill, presents the little boy to Jesus, and says, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Well, first of all, the word lad is the Greek word paiderion, which is a smaller version of the word pice. The word pice describes a little boy, but when pice becomes paiderion, like you have in this verse, it's not just a little boy, it is a very little boy. So this is a child probably between the age of four and six years old, definitely not older than seven. 
And when he says, Lord, there is a boy here, a lad, Pyderion, a little, little boy. This is just a child which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. Well, I decided to open my Greek New Testament and see what I could find out about these barley loaves. And to my surprise, it is the Greek word krithinos. In my mind, I had always imagined these were loaves of bread. But in fact, barley loaves, the Greek word krithinos, describes a barley cracker. And if you want to know how big it is, we know because they regularly ate these crackers. They were crackers about this big. So when he says, Lord, there's a little boy here with five loaves of bread, a better translation would be there's a boy here with five crackers. Well, that made me ask, how big were these fish? The word fish that is used here describes a very small pickled fish about the size of a minnow. So if you're going to translate this correctly, you would translate it, Lord, we have a little bitty boy over here that has five crackers and two minnows. And then you understand his question. But on the other hand, what are they among so many? We even know something about these crackers and minnows. Crackers and minnows of this sort were used as snacks. And they were particularly used as snacks on a long journey. Well, they were all headed to the city of Jerusalem. And when they finally got where they were going, they would have all eaten. But there was a little boy in the crowd. We've had three little boys in our family. We understand little boys. They're all the time stuffing something somewhere to eat on later. And this little boy had tucked into his pocket five crackers, two little minnows, and the way they would eat them is they would take a cracker, put the minnow on the top, put another cracker on top, and eat it as a little sandwich or a little snack. So now Andrew says, Lord, we've been looking, but finally we have found food. Here it is, Lord. We found a little boy with snacks, five crackers, and two minnows. And then what he is suggesting is so preposterous, it dawns on him how stupid is this suggestion. And he says, but on the other end, what are they among so many? This really was a crisis. But when Jesus saw the five crackers and the two minnows, Jesus did not see crisis. Jesus saw opportunity. And that's one thing about Jesus. He sees every crisis as an opportunity. I don't know what you're facing in your life right now, but in front of you there is a great opportunity if you will learn to see it with the eyes of faith. And the Bible tells us in verse 10, and Jesus said, make the men set down. The word men is the word anthropos, a generic word, which means make all the people sit down. Well, how many people were in this crowd? Well, we know exactly because of the rest of the verse. Jesus said, Anthropos, have all the people sit down and look at this. There was much grass in the place. I love the mentality of Jesus. Beautiful view, nice breezes, a lot of nice grass. Crackers and minnows, what a place for a picnic. Tell everybody to sit down. We're going to be serving the food very soon. And when you study the other gospel writers, Jesus told them to sit down by tens, by twenties, and by fifties, or by family clans. Or we find Jesus got really organized as he was preparing people to eat lunch. Now the disciples, in obedience to Jesus, 
knowing all there is is five crackers and two minnows. And how big is the crowd? We know. Because the Bible goes on to say, so the men sat down in number about what? 5,000. So people say, well, there were 5,000. No, 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 no. The word men is the word andres. The word andres is the word which describes fathers or heads of households. So when the Bible says 5,000 men, it means there were 5,000 families. 5,000 families represented. Well, Jews believed children were a blessing from the Lord. They didn't want one child or two children or three children. They had 10, 12, as many kids as they could have. These were huge families. And because it was the time of Passover, the entire family had vacated their home, all of them, with grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles. Everybody was en route to the city of Jerusalem. So you have to take the 5,000 heads of households and multiply that. And most scholars agree there was somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people in this crowd. The entire side of the hill is filled with Peter, with people. And now Andrew is saying, what are these crackers and these minnows among so many? And Jesus says, hey, it's a great time and a great place for a picnic. Look, there's grass, there's a breeze, there's a view, there's people. Have everybody sit down. In fact, have everybody sit down by their family clans, by 20s, by 50s. Have everybody get ready. Tell them that soon food will be served. And now the disciples in obedience are working the crowd. Everybody get ready. Soon the food will be served. What do you think was going through their mind? Them knowing there was nothing but five crackers and two minnows. I would imagine they were probably thinking this is false advertising. We are deluding these people. This is unfair. It is unjust. We're telling these people they're going to get something when we know there is nothing. But they obeyed Jesus. And verse 11 says, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, oh, he distributed to his disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Well, the King James Version says Jesus took the loaves. Well, that translation is not totally right. Because the word took is the Greek word elabon. A better translation would be Jesus received the loaves. That's an important difference. Because Jesus never takes anything from anybody. He's not a taker, but he is a receiver. If this little boy had chosen to eat his loaves... If he had chosen to eat the fish, they were his. Jesus would have blessed him. They would have gone in, gone through his digestive system, and ended up in the toilet. And that would have been the history of the loaves and the fishes. But the little boy gave. And Jesus was in a receptive mood. And friends, I want to tell you, he's always in a receptive mood. If you want to hang on to your money, you can keep it. It won't last long. It'll never satisfy you. If you want to hang on to your family, hang on to your business, hang on to your marriage, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You can hang on to anything you want to hang on to. But the moment you give, Jesus is always in a receptive mood. He will receive anything that you put into his hands. And Jesus received the loaves. And when he had given thanks, oh, 
the word given thanks, the Greek word eukaristos. Kerastos is from the word keras. It's where we get the word for grace. The word you, which is attached to the front, describes something swell, something wonderful. When you put the two words together, it forms eukaristos. It describes free-flowing thanksgiving that just pours out of the heart well. This is well thanksgiving. This is what you could call swell thanksgiving. Jesus wasn't looking at the loaves in his hands, mentally trying to release the power somehow to multiply what had been placed into his hands. In fact, it seems Jesus never even looked at what was in his hands. When the loaves and the fish were put into his hands, he gave thanks to Eucharistos, which means Jesus lifted his head. lifted his eyes, lifted his voice, and began to freely give thanks. Father, I thank you. You truly are Jireh. Jireh. You are El Shaddai. He began worshiping God. Eucharistos, it flowed out of him. The entire time, Jesus worshiping, 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 worshiping. And as long as Jesus worshiped and gave thanks, a miracle took place in his hands. As he thanked the Father, the loaves and the fishes began to multiply. And this is such an important point because it tells us when you move into a mode of thanksgiving, it releases the miraculous in your life. It is difficult for God to move where there is an attitude of ingratitude. But when people move into an area of thanksgiving, the miraculous begins to take place. And the Bible says he distributed we don't know how long this took, but probably this went on for a long time because there was a massive multitude to feed, and all they started with was five loaves and two fishes. They had to have enough of that multiplied to feed at least 40,000 people. Jesus stands on the brink of the mountain worshiping, blessing God, thanking God, and as long as he thanks God, it just keeps being multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. How much did he multiply? The Bible says as much as they would. Which means now the crowd is saying, hey, can you please bring me some more of those crackers? Hey, you got any more of those fish up there? And the disciples are literally running back up to where Jesus is. Jesus still standing there thanking God, blessing God. And the food just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And there's something else I just love in this. Jesus is not miserly. Jesus never says, that's enough. I've provided enough. How much do you guys want? How much do I have to do? As long as they wanted... It just kept coming. It just kept coming. Friends, we have to understand God is rich on every level. The Bible says he's rich in mercy. That word rich is the Greek word plusias. It describes somebody filthy, stinking rich. They're so rich they're not even sure how rich they are, which means when it comes to grace, God has so much grace, even he is not certain of the extent of his grace. The Bible tells us he is rich in mercy. God has so much mercy, he doesn't even know the limits of his own mercy. And when you come to Philippians 4.19, the Bible says God will meet your needs according to his riches, plusias, immense, unimaginable riches. Jesus wasn't thinking he was doing too much. And the Bible says how much they ate. Look at the next verse. And when they were filled, 
In Greek, it's called pluperfect. It means doubly filled, or they ate like gluttons. They felt like you feel at the end of Thanksgiving Day. They're laying on their sides. They're doubly filled. They're saying, oh, why did I eat so much? And yet the food just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And Jesus said to his disciples, Gather the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Oh, there's such marvelous things in this text. First of all, when it comes to meeting the needs and the wants of people, Jesus does it with no limitations. No limitations. But yet when everything is said and done, Jesus is also a Jew, and he doesn't want anything to be lost. He says, gather up the fragments that remain. He's a good manager of his blessings. And the Bible says in the following verse, therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets. Well, what would be the odds that there would be 12 apostles and 12 baskets? Interesting. Well, the word basket is the New Testament word for a suitcase. Same word for a suitcase. Disciples were traveling with suitcases. They didn't know they were going to see a miracle that day. And when Jesus said, gather up the fragments that remain, they just used whatever they had. And by the way, that's what you have to do when God asks you to do something. You have to use whatever you have, and God will take anything that you have. He'll use anything that you give him. And they begin filling their suitcases, the 12 baskets with the fragments that remain. And then look at verse 14. Then those men... What men? The disciples. The disciples. When those men, when the disciples, the disciples who had already been on the stage of the miraculous, they had seen Jesus do everything. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle, but when they saw this miracle, something they had never seen before, the verse says, then those men when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this of a truth is that prophet that should come into the world. Which means this event, which stretched their faith, took them up a notch in their revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when God works in your life. It doesn't matter how much he's already done in your past. Every time you have a new encounter with Jesus, it brings you up a level in your understanding of who he is. When you see him heal, suddenly you understand he is the healer that has come into the world. When you see him do something financially in your life, bam, you understand he really is the one who blesses us financially. And they came up in their faith. But when we come to the end of this, I have to say that the real story here is about the little boy. Because the little boy could have eaten his crackers. And in fact, Jesus would have said, enjoy those crackers. They are yours. He would have never condemned the little boy. But when the little boy put the crackers in Jesus' hands and Jesus received them, Five crackers fed a multitude. And I can just personally see that little boy walking through the crowd, 
looking at the people lying on their sides, complaining that they've eaten too much. He can see the loaves, the fishes, the fragments, feeling all the blades of grass. And he can see the apostles running around with big suitcases, trying to pick up all the fragments that remain. I can almost hear him saying to somebody, those used to be my crackers. No one understood the miracle more than the little boy. No one. I think of our lives, me and Denise. I think of Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie. Anybody that started with loaves and crackers, and now you're feeding a multitude? You know, in our own ministry, we're on TV all over the world, feeding the Soviet Union with the Word of God. Proverbs 10, 21 says, the lips of the righteous feed many. That's my job. My job is to feed many with the Word of God. And they pull up to the table. They turn on their TVs. They turn on the internet, however they watch, on their devices. They just sit and eat 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 until they are full, and none of them have a clue what a miracle it is because they weren't there when this started with Rick and Denise, Paul, Philip, and Joel, just five of us. And when this whole thing started, we could have said, you know, Jesus, we like our life in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We think we're going to stay right here. And Jesus loves us so much, he would have said, then just stay there and enjoy yourself. But when we put ourselves into his hands, he received us. And really, that's the story of our life. When you put your money in his hands, oh, don't hold on to your kids. You can't do anything with them anyway. <laughs> you can't do anything with them anyway. What a horrible thing to manage. Release them into his hands. How about your marriage? You've tried to change your spouse. Quit trying to change your spouse. It doesn't work. Just relax and release. How about your business? Your retirement? How about your age? Don't be limited by your age. You're limited by your age as long as you're trying to handle it. But when you put everything you have, whatever it is, into Jesus' hands, he receives it. And when he receives it, the miracle of multiplication begins to take place. And you become more and do more than your mind could have ever, ever, ever imagined. As long as it's in your hand, it'll be something that you can manage. Maybe. But when it goes into his hands, he truly does exceedingly above and beyond all that you can ask or think. But he'll never take anything from you. You have to give it. And he'll receive it. I want to pray for you today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Pastor Dwayne. Father, we thank you for the amazing word of God. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you that where the word of a king is, there's power. Father, we pray that today people in this room would release whatever it is they've been holding on to. Jesus, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you did it then, you'll do it today. Receive what what we give you today. Receive it. Just give it to him right now. Lord, I just, I just put it in your hand. Lord, we ask you to do more than we could ever imagine or think. In Jesus' name.
thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.